Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and moms around the world. Hi, everybody. Happy holidays. I am calling Boston today. I have Dr. Helen Reese on the line. She is an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of the Empathy and Relational Science Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. She is also the founder and chief scientist of Empathetics Incorporated. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Time, NPR, HuffPost, and more. She wrote The Empathy Effect, which is what we're talking about today. It's seven neuroscience-based keys for transforming the way we live, love, work, and connect across differences, along with Liz Naparent. And the forward is by one of my favorite actors, Alan Alda. Dr. Helen Reese, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms. Oh, thank you for having me, Ellie. Is it exciting to know that your specialty with empathy that like right now is when we need your message more than ever? Like, can you feel a shift in the curiosity around empathy and the understanding that like this might be the only way we get ourselves out of all the trouble we're in right now? (laughs) I absolutely do feel a groundswell of interest in empathy. And I really could never have predicted you know, when I started this research more than 15 years ago, that the world would need uh, an empathic message as much as it does right now. I'm curious, like, how do you teach empathy? And I'm wondering if you can share your ABC technique with us. Sure. Well, how to teach empathy was the subject of about two years of doing really deep research into the neuroscience of empathy. And what I learned was that a lot of how we connect with people is uh, both in how we perceive and how we how we respond so that there are, there's an inflow of information, there's processing, and then there's an outflow of responses. And what I realized is that a lot of people who, you know, probably started out to be very empathetic, could become dulled to their empathy traits by a lack of perception of what was going on around them. So a big part of the training that I developed uh, for empathetics is raising awareness of what's right in front of you. Mm. And that means when you look at whether it's your child or your teacher or your boss or your spouse or your partner, that you look with openness, that you meet their gaze, that you look at their face and, and, and try to see, like, what emotion are they feeling right now? It's such a different way of relating than just sort of looking up and saying, oh, hi, how was your day? You know, it's different to, to really show the curiosity by, by like taking in the information that's just right out there. So a lot of it was about picking up skills in, in perceiving facial expressions, tone of voice, 
what posture the person was exhibiting, also what your own physiologic response was. Like, were you more agitated when you were with this person or were you calmer? So that gets back to those, you know, when we, we can talk about the tracings that we did that actually measured empathy. So the teaching of empathy is about opening up our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts to what's right in front of us. And what's the ABC technique? So the ABC technique is a technique that I developed to help people stay aware of when they were stepping into an emotionally charged situation where most of the time people lose their empathy. Because when we get into a charged situation, we usually get defensive and closed off. So this takes a lot of practice. So your listeners should not be impatient with themselves when they first try this. <laughs> but the A stands for acknowledging that you're in a difficult situation. And believe it or not, that's the hardest part of this because sometimes we engage in something whether it's with a child who's not listening or, you know, talking back and we're in it before we even realize we're in it. So the first thing is just acknowledging we've just gotten into a, an emotional place. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing, if you realize you are, the B stands for breathe. And that breathing is about, you know, really slowing down the breath so that you're filling your lungs entirely, sometimes using a little mantra, like, you know, I'm breathing into the full extent of my breath. And not just telling yourself to take a deep breath, but actually slowing the breath down. And then the C stands for curiosity. And when we do this, um, you know, in challenging situations with patients, it is like magic that instead of arguing, you end up hearing the patient out and maybe they're having an emotional moment that they need to express. But then they get to a level of actually being able to work together. Wow. If you want an example of this, I can give you an example. I would love an example, Dr. Reese. I was shadowing a doctor. And we walked into a room and neither one of us realized that the patient had been waiting there for more than 45 minutes. And when we walked in, the patient at the top of his voice shouted, I've been sitting here, you know, for almost an hour and I have things to do. And, and he just was in, in a rage. And the doctor realized that, you know, he, he was going to do a little procedure and he didn't have all the equipment. He, and, and he said, I'll, I'm going to be right back. And so he basically walked out to get the tools, but the patient was still in a rage. And so I said to the patient, you sound really upset. You know, where do you need to go? Or what, what is this? You know, how is this messed up your day? Mm. And so he, he stayed at it. So that's the curiosity. 
So it was easy for me to acknowledge that we were in a difficult situation because it was really hard to miss. But I also really realized it was not directed at at me. Mm. I was able to just sort of stay in there. and, And I really was curious, like, why was he in such a rage? And so he explained, you know, that he had to be somewhere and what the consequences were if he was late, but he'd waited for six months for this appointment. And so I nodded, I listened, I was at eye level with him. And I said, I really understand. And I said, if you need to reschedule, you know, I think we we need to do that for you. And then he took a deep breath and he said, look, I can make a call. And um, now that I'm here, I I think I just want to have this done. Mm. And so... (laughs) It, you know, he, he had an option to still leave. Yeah. But the thing was, once he was listened to, he got it out of himself. And you gave him the choice, but not in a defensive way. It was like, we can reschedule or we can do this. And by you self-regulating, he was probably able to mirror that himself. It's it, I know that so many moms listening are like, I have had this exact experience with my toddler. <laughs> like, it's incredible mm-hmm. that it's the same tools that we can use with, you know, adults in our life and with our children, like that we all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. Sometimes we just need to let that frustration out. And obviously, you know, when we're in, I've been in many doctor's offices And then the worst would always be like, I would end up in a gown and then it'd be like 45, I swear they would put me in a gown so that I couldn't like wander the halls and show my butt asking like, where's my doctor? (laughs) I feel like that's a technique that you guys use sometimes. (laughs) That we end up in these. Most of the the lateness is really inadvertent. Um, No, I know. But it's always like, you know, you get undressed and then you wait. (laughs) It's like they know that you're really Hurry up and wait. You're naked. But there's a vulnerability there that I think also, you know, needs to be acknowledged. And we, in this feeling, a lack of control and the not knowing. And so these tools that you are giving these doctors and now parents that read your book are so helpful for, you know, making, God, diffusing the situation and coming at it from a place of love. And something that you said that is really reaching me is like this idea that when we look at it with curiosity, that it's not so personal. And I think that that's something that Mm -hmm. I've been missing in my own life. I am deeply empathic, but it can be exhausting. And I think it's Mm -hmm. because I have not been, uh, I'm going to become more aware of like that it, I can feel these things, but it doesn't need to be personal to me at all times. You know, it's my child's problem is not my problem. I can, you know, be there with her when she falls and hurts herself. And I can acknowledge if I'm scared because of that, but I don't need to take it on and hold on to it. It's about the breathing and these techniques that we're going to talk about a little more throughout this conversation. Um, Well, one of the things that I just thought of when you said, um, you know, that how that patient reacted is just like a toddler. And I think it's helpful for everyone to realize that we all have that toddler inside of us. Mm -hmm. So just because we're 38 or 40 or 50 or whatever, it doesn't mean that that two-year-old has disappeared. Like all of those little frustrated, you know, times in our lives when we didn't have the words or we didn't have you know, the full expression to put to put things into a, a more contained kind of format. They're mm-hmm. all in us and they can get triggered when we get 
really frightened or really frustrated. And so the techniques are exactly the same. And the interesting thing about that patient was that after the procedure was done, it was a very short procedure, he actually looked over to both the doctor and my and me, and he said, I really want to apologize about how I behaved. I, I realize that you guys are doing the best you can. And so wow. that to me is the full circle of empathy is that when you know, you, you apologize for what happened. You're curious about why it's such a problem. And people realize, like, you're not trying to frustrate them. And then often you'll get, you know, a full circle response. Well, one of the things that I found most interesting about your book is the you talk about the physiological markers of empathy. And I've always thought, I mean, I'm a former actor. I'm super empathic. And when I would try to explain sort of the way it works for me to my parents, it always felt very hippy-dippy. And so I loved that you guys are doing studies that actually show the, like, the biological changes that happen within our body. So I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about, like, the neuroscience behind empathy and what you guys are finding out. Sure. One of the reasons that I really got so intrigued by the concept of empathy is that it's been the basis of my work as a psychiatrist, you know, for my entire career. And it also became really clear that in some situations, empathy came easily and others, it was more challenged. And I got involved in a research project at Mass General now many years ago, where one of my students was interested in whether we could measure physiologic changes between doctors and patients during the doctor visit. And this hypothesis was that if a patient felt empathized with, he predicted that their, the physiology or the, the markers like heart rate and, and skin conductance would actually vary together that there would be something called concordance. And if the patient didn't feel empathized with, there would be discordance. And I ended up participating in this research study as, as a subject with one of my own patients. What we learned by looking at both, you know, my own results and that of many, many others is that patients who rated their doctors high on empathy had the most periods of physiologic synchrony. So if you looked at their tracings, they would look like um, they were really varying together. And if the patient did not experience the doctor as being empathetic, they had virtually no synchrony in their, in their physiology. And the thing that was so exciting to me was that we finally had some physical evidence for exactly what you're talking about, Ellie, this feeling of, you know, when we get other people, when we understand and when we feel understood, that there was now something visual we could work with. It's, I want to come to Boston right now. Have you guys done any studies? I want to be like Elle Woods. I'm going to show up at Harvard and be like, hey, everybody, I've got a great idea. Have you done studies with mothers? Because I have a 15-month-old and a five-year-old. But with my 15-month-old, especially like when it's nap time or when it's time to go to sleep at night, that 
synchrony, the physiological synchronicity. Now I'm just making up words too. I'm totally all words right now. But like that, (laughs) what happens between me and my baby when I'm able to get on the same wavelength and our breath matches. And even when I do, I'll do this kind of weird thing sometimes that works for me where I'll do this like low hum. And and I think it's the vibration and she'll Mm -hmm. she'll match me and we mirror each other in that way. And then I'm able to get her to fall asleep that way because we've, if I'm able to prime prime my body for sleep and total relaxation, she mirrors that and it helps her fall asleep as well. And I'm curious, have you guys, have you guys done studies yet on mothers and babies with that? I think that's a fascinating study idea. We have not hooked up babies and mothers, but it, you know, it's, it is such a great concept to, you know, show mothers and, and their infants or their children, what I suspect would be a very similar finding that when we feel relaxed and comfortable and open and listening, you know, through a lot of mirror mechanisms in the brain, these sensations, smells, touch, tone of voice, eye contact, all these things work together to produce similar responses in in the receiver. And we all <laughs> know that the times when we're the most stressed and it's most important to get our children to sleep and when we really need them to be quiet for whatever reason and, and get their naps in, is usually the time when they're least likely to do so because they're probably picking up on the the, you know, the tension and the, the stress and the um, the lack of relaxation that they need to feel comfortable and relaxed. Right. They can smell my desperation. Is that what you're saying, Dr. Reese? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> but it is, it's, it's, I would love to see that. To go back for a second to your, that original study between the doctors and the patients, I totally understand why being empathetic or empathic would be helpful for the patient. I'm curious about the burnout rates because I read that doctors have less burnout if they're empathic. And I'm curious about that because I would think that the more empathic you are to your patients, the more burnout would happen because you would be so invested in them and you would be feeling what they're feeling. So that is a really, really astute question, and it's one that comes up all the time. You know, empathy and burnout have a very interesting relationship, and here it's important to define that there are different types of empathy. So there's emotional empathy, where we feel what other people are feeling. That's called affective, because the scientific word for emotion is affect. It's called affective empathy. And that is in distinction to cognitive empathy, where cognitive empathy, instead of in the emotional, residing in the emotional parts of our brain, is in the prefrontal cortex or the, you know, the front of our brain, the thinking, the planning, the prioritizing part of the brain. And doctors need to be able to have, you know, an agile relationship between cognitive and emotional empathy. Same with mothers. So if we have too much emotional empathy, we can start to feel the burden of every single challenge, cut, scrape, and, 
you know, quarrel or, or sadness that our children feel. And if we are so loaded with that feeling, we might, might not be able to engage cognitive empathy as well, which is to step back and get a perspective on the bigger picture. So I don't think that empathy causes burnout. I think a lack of empathy actually can make burnout worse because people can not really benefit from the really amazing connection that they have with their patients if they're completely cognitive and not feeling with people at all. That can make the job feel very rote and um, demanding and tedious. So empathy can provide kind of the spark that makes taking care of patients really feel wonderful and worthwhile. Yeah, it gives them that sense of purpose again. Exactly. And that's what draws most health professionals to careers in healthcare. They, they want to help and they, they love the feeling of helping. In fact, most people do. Um, and I think we're wired to get that good feeling in helping because that's really what makes our species survive. It's this sort of feedback loop that people in need evoke a desire to help. And then that feeling that your help has been, um, you know, has really been beneficial can make you feel good. And that's how it's supposed to work. But we all know that doctors and nurses and mothers can really get an overdose of need, dependency, and kind of a relentless demand on their time and their emotions. And that's where it's important to step back and use some cognitive empathy to stay in the role as a parent and stay in the role as a physician or nurse. Most patients don't want their physician or nurse, you know, crying uncontrollably if they're getting a bad diagnosis. They probably want to feel that the person cares and that they're moved by what's happening, but they maintain their role in, you know, in how they can help them navigate you know, whatever the illness is. So, so true in parenting too. You know, if we get derailed and, you know, kind of off the rails every time our children have a problem, we're not really recruiting some of our best, you know, strategies and helping behaviors to, to really provide the assistance that they need. So when you talk about cognitive empathy, what are ways that we know that we are in that versus the other kind, the affect. Emotional, yeah, affective empathy. empathy. Yeah. Well, so one of the first things is to recognize that you're getting overwhelmed, you know, so you have to use sort of a thinking part of your brain to say, I'm getting too um, emotional or I'm getting too uh, wrapped up in what's happening here. Um, I need to take a step back. So your thinking part actually has to be sort of a regulator. Mm -hmm. And I also want to say that when all of us get into emotional dysregulation for whatever reason, we need tools to help with self-regulation. And that helps also to decrease burnout, whether it's in parenting or in healthcare. Yes. We are not an endless supply of empathy and caring. You know, we also need to take care of ourselves. I recently had a guest on talking about 
sensory processing disorders. And she had a great Mm -hmm. analogy of a paper plate and that if you keep putting things on the paper plate, that eventually the paper plate will break. And so it's like, how can we be, you know, taking notice of what's going on in our life? Or maybe we've got too much happening. And how can we take these little breaks to, you know, regain our center? I guess that's where all the self-care comes in, right? Like, how do we... How do we sort of get grounded again? Yes. So I think there are, you know, obviously more long-term commitments to self-care, such as, you know, maybe starting a yoga practice or a meditation practice and regular exercise, eating well, if you love music, you know, sort of to, to bring the things into your life that really make you feel good. And then there are the moment-to-moment opportunities for self-regulation that I think we need at our disposal, you know, like on a moment's notice, right? So one of the, I think the greatest things about the human body is that it has a lot of built-in self-regulation, but we have to learn how to use it. And so, you know, we're all probably familiar with Um, the importance of noticing the breath when we're meditating or, you know, just focusing on the breath to, to calm down. But there are some other techniques, like instead of saying to yourself or to your child, now take a few deep breaths or now count to 10 before you respond, that you can actually be saying some self-talk to yourself and teaching this to your children so that when you're taking a deep breath, you're actually saying to yourself some words that make sure that the breath is really deep and really full because that will actually start to slow your heart rate down and that will lower your blood pressure. So saying to yourself something like, I am breathing in to the full extent of my breath. You might want to just try that with me right this moment, Ellie. Let's just say you're breathing in to the full extent of your breath. And then as you exhale, you're saying, I am breathing out to the full extent of my breath. And if you do that a couple of times, by the time you say all of those words, your breathing actually has slowed, Mm -hmm. you know, and then once you, you, you're mentally actually focusing on filling those lungs with air and making sure they're really full and then really, you know, emptied, you're now thinking about something else other than the stress that got you to start breathing this way. Then the cognitive empathy can come into play better because we're able to look at the world with more of a sense of curiosity and problem solving from right. It, it opens up exactly. It opens up the parasympathetic um, nervous system, which is the slowed more um, deliberate, more open, right-sided part of the brain where we can come up with more creative solutions. Everyone, I always think of parasympathetic nervous system as the parachute. It's like going down, parasympathetic. (laughs) That's great. That always helps me. And then versus the fight or flight, which all of us know very well. I would love to talk to you about this optimal frustration uh, that you mentioned Mm -hmm. in the book because 
that phrase has stuck with me and I've been thinking about it in my own life because I I'm, you know, in yoga, you talk about finding, you know, feeling the edge. And I in my career right now, a lot of exciting things are happening and it's also uh, can be a little overwhelming, but it's, I keep thinking mm-hmm. about that optimal frustration. Like what is that without some friction, there isn't growth. And I would love for you to share what you write about, about our children and teaching them about optimal frustration and how it's actually beneficial to us. Okay. So that's another really, really important question. And, you know, when, when I read the psychoanalyst's work named Heinz Kohut, that's was my first introduction to this concept that, you know, we're all taught to respond to our children's needs and to make sure they're not you know, crying too long and that they, they know that we're there and that we're present. And I think that Kohut noticed that a certain degree of delay or waiting for our needs, for the babies or the children's needs or our needs to be met um, is not a bad thing, that it actually can build trust and can build a sense of confidence that your caregiver is coming and that this this is a way that children learn delayed gratification. So if parents are struggling to, you know, pick up the baby the second she starts crying or, you know, to, you know, run out of a shower because the baby needs the diaper changed instead of finishing your shower, you're you're kind of teaching the child that they can't be uncomfortable you know, for even 10 seconds that that they have to have every need attended to immediately. And that can teach a child that, you know, that they never have to sort of wait or, you know, that they can be uncomfortable for a short period of time. And then, you know, mother or father will come to take care of the need. Now, this is not at all, you know, intended to apply that we should be you know, neglecting our children on purpose or doing anything to, you know, make them fearful or um, that they can't trust us. But the the minor delays that happen just in real life, like sometimes we're in the bathroom when the baby starts crying or, you know, we're finishing up an important call and we can't get there in, in 15 seconds. It might take two minutes. That these delays actually teach children that everything is still okay if it doesn't happen immediately. And that's the optimal frustration. Then there's suboptimal frustration when they're waiting so long that they get really dysregulated and they lose trust in their caregivers. What is an example of optimal frustration in your daily life? Can you give an example for yourself? Do do you mean with my children or just... I mean with you. I'm just thinking like as mothers, like... Mm-hmm. To, you know, that we don't get this instant gratification all the time. Or if we send out something for work and we don't get an immediate response, like that's okay. We can trust and, and you know, sit in the question of it for a little longer and that's okay. Oh, yeah. So I guess one ready example is that, you know, I have two children and one of them responds to every text. Like she just likes getting things off her plate. And so she'll respond right away. And um, my son is not so immediate. And sometimes, you know, some 
a day or will go by and he won't have answered something. And what I've learned is if it's really important and urgent, he does. But he um, he assumes that if it's not urgent, that I can wait. So it's a really interesting way of kind of teaching me that he's not on the same time clock I am, but I've learned that, you know, if something's not urgent, I can, I can wait a day, you know, that, and so my expectations are different for each of the two of them. Oh, that is, that's interesting. I want to talk to you for a second about Interlochen because you mentioned briefly in the book that you were a camp counselor there. We spend time in Traverse City, Michigan every summer. I record the podcast out there. I'm curious how you ended up at Interlochen because I also want to talk about uh, the importance of arts as it relates to empathy. Well, um, that's a small world connection. (laughs) Not that many people have heard of Interlochen Music Camp, but I was a music major in college and I had an opportunity to um, apply to be a camp counselor and also at the same time to take piano lessons from, you know, a, a very well-known um, artist from New York City who was there for the summer. And so I had the great experience of being surrounded by incredible art and music that whole summer. How has your experience as a musician, you know, influenced your work you know, as a doctor studying empathy now? So, you know, I, at that time, I didn't know that I was going to become a psychiatrist. But um, I think that, you know, one of the things that I always heard when I played music was that, you know, it's not that I always got the, not, the notes all right, but I always caught the emotion. Mm-hmm. And my teachers would um, say, you know, you, you really you really got what, what Brahms is, is trying to say here. And you've, you know, the way you phrased that is, you know, I think exactly how Mozart would have intended it. So I think I had kind of a receptors for the emotion in music. And, you know, I think that kind of trained my ear to hear a lot of kind of subtlety in volume, pitch, timbre, and, you know, the speed at which people speak. And I think that's been part of what I've really enjoyed about, you know, my clinical practice is deeply listening to people's different expressions of, of emotion through voice, which has its own, you know, sort of lyricism and rhythm to it. And sometimes people lose that when they're anxious or depressed. So I do think music has informed my profession to a a really, really large degree. Gosh, well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Reese. I super appreciate this conversation and your book. Everybody, go get it. It's The Empathy Effect, Seven Neuroscience-Based Keys for Transforming the Way We Live, Love, Work, and Connect Across Differences. Thank you so much, Dr. Reese. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And special thanks to fellow Smithy Brandy King for arranging this interview. Okay, everyone, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. If you have an iPhone, just check out your little Apple Podcasts app. It's already on your phone, and you can search Atomic Moms and hit subscribe so you don't miss our upcoming episodes. And we will see everybody in January.
Until 2019, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Atomic Moms.